The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 3, The Guillotine. Book 2, Regicide. Chapter 8, Place de la Révolution. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 2, Chapter 8, Place de la Révolution. To this conclusion, then, hast thou come, O hapless Louis. The son of sixty kings is to die on the scaffold by form of law. Under sixty kings this same form of law, form of society, has been fashioning itself together these thousand years, and has become one way and another a most strange machine. Surely, if needful, it is also frightful, this machine, dead, blind, not what it should be, which, with swift stroke or by cold, slow torture, has wasted the lives and souls of innumerable men. And behold now a king himself, or say rather kinghood in his person, is to expire here in cruel tortures, like a phalara shut in the belly of his own red-heated brazen bull. It is ever so, and thou shouldst know it, O haughty tyrannous man. Injustice breeds injustice. Curses and falsehoods do verily return always home, wide as they may wander. Innocent Louis bears the sins of many generations, he too experiences that man's tribunal is not in this earth, that if he had no higher one, it were not well with him. A king dying by such violence appeals impressively to the imagination, as the like must do and ought to do. And yet at bottom it is not the king dying, but the man. Kingship is a coat, the grand loss is of the skin. The man from whom you take his life, to him can the whole combined world do more? Lai went on, his hurdle, his mouth filled with a gag. Miserablest mortals doomed for picking pockets have a whole five-act tragedy in them, in that dumb pain as they go to the gallows unregarded. They consume the cup of trembling down to the lees. For kings and for beggars, for the justly doomed and the unjustly, it is a hard thing to die. Pity them all, thy utmost pity with all aids and appliances and throne and scaffold contrasts, how far short is it of the thing pitied? A confessor has come, Abbe Edgeworth of Irish extraction, whom the king knew by good report, has come promptly on this solemn mission. Leave the earth alone, then, thou hapless king. It with its malice will go its way, thou also canst go thine. A hard scene yet remains, the parting with our loved ones. Kind hearts environed in the same grim peril with us to be left here. Let the reader look with eyes of valet Clary through these glass doors, where also the municipality watches, and see the cruelest of scenes. At half-past eight the door of the anteroom opened. The Queen appeared first, leading her son by the hand, then Madame Royale and Madame Elizabeth, they all flung themselves into the arms of the king. Silence reigned for some minutes, interrupted only by sobs. The queen made a movement to lead his majesty towards the inner room, where Monsieur Edgeworth was waiting unknown to them. No, said the king, let us go into the dining room, it is there only that I can see you. They entered there, I shut the door of it, which was of glass. The king sat down, the queen on his left hand, Madame Elizabeth on his right, Madame Royale almost in front, 
The young prince remained standing between his father's legs. They all leaned towards him and often held him embraced. This scene of woe lasted an hour and three quarters, during which we could hear nothing. We could see only that always when the king spoke, the sobbings of the princesses redoubled, continued for some minutes, and that then the king began again to speak. And so our meetings and our partings do now end. The sorrows we gave each other, the poor joys we faithfully shared, and all our lovings and our sufferings and confused toilings under the earthly sun are over. Thou, good soul, I shall never, never, through all ages of time, see thee any more. Never. O reader, knowest thou that hard word? For nearly two hours this agony lasts, then they tear themselves asunder. Promise that you will see us on the morrow. He promises. Ah, yes, yes, yet once, and go now, ye loved ones. Cry to God for yourselves and me. It was a hard scene, but it is over. He will not see them on the morrow. The Queen, in passing through the anteroom, glanced at the Cerberus municipals, and with woman's vehemence said through her tears, Vous êtes tous des scélérats. King Louis slept sound till five in the morning, when Clary, as he had been ordered, awoke him. Clary dressed his hair. While this went forward, Louis took a ring from his watch and kept trying it on his finger. It was his wedding ring, which he is now to return to the Queen as a mute farewell. At half-past six he took the sacrament and continued in devotion and conference with Abbe Edgeworth. He will not see his family. It were too hard to bear. At eight the municipals enter. The king gives them his will and messages and effects, which they at first brutally refuse to take charge of. He gives them a roll of gold pieces, a hundred and twenty-five louis. These are to be returned to Malesherbe, who had lent them. At nine, Santerre says the hour is come. The king begs yet to retire for three minutes. At the end of three minutes, Santerre again says the hour is come. Stamping on the ground with his right foot, Louis answers, Paton, let us go. How the rolling of those drums comes in, through the temple bastions and bullocks, on the heart of a queenly wife, soon to be a widow. He is gone then, and has not seen us. A queen weeps bitterly, a king's sister and children. Over all these four does death also hover. All shall perish miserably save one. She, as Duchess d'Angoulême, will live, not happily. At the temple gate were some faint cries, perhaps from voices of pitiful women. Grâce! Grâce! Through the rest of the streets there is silence, as of the grave. No man not armed is allowed to be there. The armed, did any even pity, dare not express it, each man overawed by all his neighbours. All windows are down, none seen looking through them. All shops are shut. No wheel carriage rolls this morning in these streets, but one only. Eighty thousand armed men stand ranked like armed statues of men. Cannons bristle, cannoneers with match burning, but no word or movement. It is as a city enchanted into silence and stone. One carriage with its escort, slowly rumbling, is the only sound. Louis reads in his book of devotion the prayers of the dying. 
clatter of this death march fall sharp on the ear in the great silence, but the thought would fain struggle heavenward and forget the earth. As the clock strike ten, behold the Place de la Révolution, once Place de Louis Cannes, the guillotine mounted near the old pedestal where once stood the statue of that Louis. Far round all bristle with cannons and armed men, spectators crowding in the rear, d'Orléans de Galate there in Cabriolet. Swift messengers, hoquetons, speed to the town hall every three minutes, nearby is the convention sitting, vengeful for Le Pelletier. Heedless of all, Louis reads his prayers of the dying. Not till five minutes yet has he finished, then the carriage opens. What temper he is in? Ten different witnesses will give ten different accounts of it. He is in the collision of all tempers, arrived now at the black maelstrom and descent of death, in sorrow, in indignation, in resignation, struggling to be resigned. Take care of Monsieur Edgeworth, he straightly charges the lieutenant who is sitting with them. Then they too descend. The drums are beating. Taisez-vous, silence, he cries, in a terrible voice, d'une voix terrible. He mounts the scaffold, not without delay. He is in puce coat, breeches of grey, white stockings. He strips off the coat, stands disclosed in a sleeve waistcoat of white flannel. The executioners approach to bind him. He spurns, resists. Abbe Edgeworth has to remind him how the Saviour, in whom men trust, submitted to be bound. His hands are tied, his head bare. The fatal moment is come. He advances to the edge of the scaffold, his face very red, and says, Frenchman, I die innocent. It is from the scaffold and near appearing before God that I tell you so. I pardon my enemies. I desire that France... A general on horseback, Centaire or another, prances out with uplifted hand. Tambours! The drums drown the voice. Executioners, do your duty! The executioners, desperate lest themselves be murdered, for Santerre and his armed ranks will strike if they do not, seize the hapless Louis. Six of them desperate, him singly desperate, struggling there, and bind him to their plank. Abbe Edgeworth, stooping, bespeaks him, Son of St. Louis, ascend to heaven. The axe clanks down. A king's life is shorn away. It is Monday, the 21st of January, 1793. He was aged 38 years, 4 months and 28 days. Executioner Samson shows the head. Fierce shout of Viva la République rises and swells. Caps raised on bayonets, hats waving. Students of the College of Four Nations take it up on the far quay, fling it over Paris. Orléans drives off in his cabriolet. The town hall councillors rub their hands, saying, It is done, it is done. There is dipping of handkerchiefs, of pike points in the blood. Headsman Samson, though he afterwards denied it, sells locks of the hair, fractions of the puce coat are long after worn in rings. And so, in some half-hour it is done, and the multitude has all departed. Pastry cooks, coffee sellers, milkmen sing out their trivial quotidian cries. The world wags on as if this were a common day. In the coffee-houses that evening, says Proudhon, Patriot shook hands with Patriot in a more cordial manner than usual. 
Not till some days after, according to Messier, did public men see what a grave thing it was. A grave thing it indisputably is, and will have consequences. On the morrow morning, Roland, so long steeped to the lips in disgust and chagrin, sends in his demission. His accounts lie already, correct in black on white to the uttermost farthing. These he wants but to have audited that he might retire to remote obscurity to the country and his books. They will never be audited, those accounts. He will never get retired thither. It was on Tuesday that Roland demitted. On Thursday comes Le Pelletier, Saint-Fargo's funeral and passage to the pantheon of great men, notable as the wild pageant of a winter day. The body is borne aloft, half bare, the winding sheet disclosing the death wound. Sabre and bloody clothes parade themselves, a lugubrious music wailing harsh nainiae. Oak crowns shower down from windows. President Vernier walks there with convention, with Jacobin society, and all patriots of every colour, all mourning, brother-like. Notable also for another thing, this burial of Le Pelletier, it was the last act these men ever did with concert. All parties and figures of opinion that agitate this distracted France and its convention now stand, as it were, face to face and dagger to dagger, the king's life round which they all struck and battled being hurled down. Dumouriez, conquering Holland, growls ominous discontent at the head of armies. Men say Dumouriez will have a king. That young Dorleans Egalité shall be his king. Deputy Fauchet in the Journal des Armées curses his day more bitterly than Job did, invokes the poniards of regicides, of Arras vipers or Robespierre's, of Pluto Dantons, of horrid butchers Legendre and Simulacra Debois to send him swiftly to another world than theirs. This is tedium Fauchet of the Bastille of Victory, of the Cercle Society. Sharp was the death-hail rattling round one's flag of truce on that Bastille day, but it was soft to such wreckage of high hope as this. One's new golden era going down in leaden dross and sulphurous black of the everlasting darkness. At home this killing of a king has divided all friends, and abroad it has united all enemies. Fraternity of peoples, revolutionary propagandism, atheism, regicide, total destruction of social order in this world. All kings and lovers of kings and haters of anarchy rank in coalition as in a war for life. England signifies to citizen Chauvelin, the ambassador, or rather ambassador's cloak, that he must quit the country in eight days. Ambassadors Cloak and Ambassador Chauvelin and Talleyrand depart accordingly. Talleyrand, implicated in that iron press of the Tuileries, thinks it safest to make for America. England has cast out the embassy. England declares war, being shocked principally, it would seem, at the condition of the River Scheldt. Spain declares war, being shocked principally at some other thing, which doubtless the manifesto indicates. Nay, we find it was not England that declared war first, or Spain first, but that France herself declared war first on both of them, a point of immense parliamentary and journalistic interest in those days, but which has become of no interest whatever in these. They all declare war. The sword is drawn, the scabbard thrown away. 
It is even as Danton said in one of his all too gigantic figures. The coalized kings threaten us. We hurl at their feet as gauge of battle the head of a king. End of book two, chapter eight.